0: Just uh, go ahead and stand up, man. Show off that shirt. Well done. Uh, Anthony, over the course of his career, and I'm going to mess a little bit of this up maybe, but he was a, a tutor for a long time. And he transitioned into the corporate world, uh, works in DEI, uh, and just does an incredible job. Um, and so he is... Uh, Doing incredible work uh, at his company, um, but also uh, just is always, wherever he's going to be, is always going to be a teacher, Um, and I go to Anthony uh, so often with my own questions uh, about uh, diversity and what it looks like for us to do this well as a church um, and be a church that is welcoming uh, and caring about folks coming from all sorts of backgrounds and cultures and ethnicities, and Anthony always has such a generous spirit about him, Uh, so we are blessed to have you as part of the church and excited to celebrate you, and lunch is on you uh, going forward, Uh, so. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your good fortune with all of us. Um, all right, last announcement is we got Bible study uh, again this Wednesday. Uh, and so uh, Rachel uh, talked about the kids, um, and then the adults are upstairs at 6 o'clock. And so, kids. And dinner, if you're an adult and want some pizza, you get here at 5:30, and then at 6, the kids stay downstairs and the adults come on upstairs. So make sure you're here. Pastor Mac will be leading us this week, uh, and we are happy uh, just to continue to learn and grow in God's Word together. Uh, and I do just want to take a moment uh, to piggyback off of Christy and just say Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. Uh, Men, good fathers are—you are such a gift uh, to our church. Uh, you're such a gift to your spouses. You're such a gift obviously to our children as well. And over the past few months, I've become kind of a bit fascinated, uh, kind of a deep dive into kind of the data behind um, the impact that dads have on their children. And it is uh, Mind-blowing uh, how impactful a good, present, loving dad is to your children. So we just want to say thank you uh, for being a good dad uh, and encourage you to continue to take steps forward and what it looks like to love, to show up, to participate, and to disciple your kids. And I hope that you are celebrated well today. Uh, a few years ago, somebody asked one of my daughters uh, what, what I was going to do on Father's Day, and she responded to that church member with Dad's probably going to come home, take off his shirt, sit on the couch, eat chips, and watch golf. Um, and, and I was like, she's not wrong. Uh, she's not wrong. Uh, so I hope that your Father's Day are also as wonderful as that Father's Day was for me a few years ago. Uh, but. If you have your Bibles open them up uh, to Luke 9, uh, and we are going to get into the sermon together. This is going to magically show up on the screen behind me. A shout out to Aaron for running the slides this morning. Great job. Uh, but this is Luke 9:18 through 24. I'm going to read this, I'm going to pray, and then we'll all dive into the sermon. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one, that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever... Loses their life for me will save it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word and so thankful that we have written down these important conversations between our Savior and his disciples. And Father, may we be molded and shaped. May the Holy Spirit mold and shape our hearts and our heads and our lives to be conformed to these words of Scripture. Father, may those of us in this room who are discouraged, may they be encouraged going forward. Those of us who feel like we are without peace, may we we have more peace as we exit church today. And Father, I pray for those in our church community who are hurting Whether that is physically or relationally with friendships or marriage. Whether that is financially or whether it's with housing or some other health issue going on in their life. May your kingdom come on earth in our communities as it is in heaven. And Father, continue to grow us. Continue to grow us up into a church that is healthier and healthier and healthier. And we praise you an opportunity to be the church together. Father, give us continued encouragement and continued courage to walk forward as a church community together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Are we switching mics? Are we good? Who can hear me? All right. Alright, so there, in the course of your life, no matter how old you are, I mean, the older you are, the more of these you're going to have, but you will experience a myriad of important questions that you will have to answer. There's questions that you will have to answer, like when you are in a car, should you pay a little extra to get that insurance for your rental car? The answer to that is yes, you should pay it. Should you ask your buddy to move over you know, in middle school or high school so you can sit next to that cute girl that you have had your eyes on? Answer is yes. Should I take that internship or that job that has become an opportunity for me? Questions you'll have to answer. Should I move to fill in the blank? Should I say yes to that ministry opportunity that feels a little overwhelming? Questions some of you have already answered. Should I marry this woman or this man? Deeper questions that I hope you're asking yourselves. What am I afraid of? What is God calling me into? For the dads in this room, the question that you've had to answer probably at some point is what do I say when that doctor asked if I want to see the baby come out or just stay near my wife's head for that moment? <laughs> I would tell you, think this through before the moment. Uh, this is one of my buddies. Uh, I remember texting him after his wife was, uh, wife had delivered, and he said, we're both doing well. We're lying next to each other in our beds because he passed out uh, during the delivery. But as important as these questions are, they will all pale in comparison to the most important question any of us will ever answer. And our highest and best life is utterly dependent on correctly answering this question, the same question the disciples got of who is Jesus? Who do they say that I am? Jesus asks those disciples. He, know, he knew that there had been some chatter, some noise about who He is, and Peter, who, as he often does, is acting as a spokesman for the disciples, he cries out and says, "God's Messiah." Boom. Correct answer. Messiah comes from a Hebrew word which means anointed one or chosen one. But let's back up a second in this conversation because if we're being honest, this is, bit of an, this is a bit of an odd exchange between Jesus and his disciples. I mean, why is Jesus even asking them this question? Is Jesus having some sort of identity crisis? there's some sort of ego validation moment on his part? And I would say I don't think that is the case. You see, Jesus, he asked him, who do the crowd say that I am? Because those crowds have been saying all sorts of things that are incorrect about Jesus. Some are thinking he's John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Others, that he was Elijah. Both significant men of the faith, but still just Men, But even more than these specific names, the people are saying the chatter amongst the people are that they are longing for Jesus to be something that he, in fact, was not and was not going to be. You see, the Jewish people today were longing for, more than anything, Jesus to be the one that would lead them as a sort of political Messiah. A deliverer from the Roman yoke of oppression that they were under, and what's fascinating is that even after Jesus, even after Peter correctly answers that Jesus is the Messiah, what does Jesus tell him to do? Tells him to keep his mouth shut. Why? Well, theologians have argued that if word that Jesus knew that if word would get out that he was the Messiah, it would be undoubtedly misinterpreted. And people would have further tried to hijack the mission of Jesus into something it was never meant to be. And can you imagine this? People using the name of Jesus to further their earthly, fleshly desires? Would never happen today. So two things we see here, first and foremost, is that people can believe in Jesus, but still have a dramatically poor understanding of His mission. That's a warning to us. And the second we see, just from the jump here, is that we must be willing to stand up boldly for who Christ is and His mission. What an incredible moment for these disciples. Jesus, after hearing what the crowds would answer to that question, He looks the disciples square in the eyes and says, but who do you think that I am? And with clarity and boldness, they answered that question correctly. They did not think of Jesus the same way the world thought of Jesus. And we see throughout the Scriptures that conformity to the world and a lack of willingness to be distinctive in our faith is strongly condemned throughout the story of God's people. And looking at this passage, a theologian named William Hendrickson points out that when the Son of God, in in the history of the Israelites, when the sons of God marry the daughters of men in Genesis 6, the result is deluge. When Israel worships a golden calf, 3,000 Israelites lost their lives. When Israel, with the purpose of being like other nations, demands a king, what's the final result? The final final result is a shameful defeat in battle in which that king commits suicide. Church, the list goes on and on and on and on. And yes, we are called to be in the world. We're called to hold jobs. We're called to be active in our community, friends with both Christians and non-Christians. But we are also certainly called to live lives, hold beliefs, and carry convictions that are not of this world. And that's what we're seeing from the disciples in this moment. When everybody else is saying that Jesus is just a mere man, Peter cries out, you are the Messiah. Church, this is the same question that we're being asked, maybe not blatantly from Jesus in the same exact way, but the same question we're getting asked over and over again. Who do you say Jesus is? And the correct answer 2,000 years ago and for two bazillion years to come is that He is God's Messiah. And when we realize this, it absolutely changes everything about our lives. Let me explain this a different way. There's a woman named Barbara Boyd who explains it this way, and she says, if the distance, follow me here, you scientists, if the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles, If that distance was the thickness of a piece of paper, the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. Our galaxy is less than a speck of dust in the part of the universe that we can see. And that part of the universe might just be a speck of dust compared to all the universe. And if Jesus is the Son of God who holds all of this together with the word of his power... Is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? It's absurd, right? But that's so often how we treat our Messiah. We go about our lives, and when we see fit, when we need something, we give him a shout and ask for a favor. It's like that show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, where you, the guy's asked a myriad of questions, and he's got three kind of helps along the way, and one of those helps is to phone a friend. And so if he gets to a a, a question that he or she is stumped by, he can phone a friend to help answer that question. And brothers and sisters, that's how we treat Jesus so often. We're doing life as we think is best without consulting him at all. And then when we get in a jam, what do we do? We say, all right, let me phone a friend to get out of this mess that I got myself in. He is not a personal assistant. He's not a co-pilot. He's not a consultant. He's not simply a -a phone-a-friend, and He's not even simply a teacher to us. He is the Messiah. And when we see this to the extent we understand this, our lives are changed accordingly. We realign our lives, as the Scripture tells us in this passage, behind Him. This is the call. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and do what? Follow me. So that's the what of what we're called to, but now we need to talk about the how this works. How do we become men and women who are in the world and not of the world? How do we become men and women who are disciples? And the first and foremost thing is that we simply listen to Him. There's no shortcuts, men and women. We spend time in His Word. We spend time with others in His Word. We come to church to listen to the Word preached. In essence, we keep our eyes on Him. This past week, we were on vacation, and my family goes to the same spot, kind of on the South Carolina coast for vacation every summer. And this summer, we brought... Uh, we we kind of got there with all of my aunts and uncles and cousins, and there's 38 of us uh, on vacation together. And it's a, it is just as chaotic as it sounds. <laughs> so one of the things that we love to do when we are there, on the South Carolina coast, when we are over there, is we love to go on bike rides. And for whatever reason, like getting my kids to go on a bike ride here is like pulling teeth, but like when we're there, they're like, where can we go today? They're so excited about it. And these aren't just little bike rides, like one to two miles. We are, we are going and we are, we are gone for 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half, like six, seven, eight, ten miles on these bike rides and they're, there's a train of, you know, of, of Henleys and, and the rest of our crew uh, in these bike rides, ranging from uh, the oldest, probably 68, to the youngest, you know, being uh, six or seven months, who's in a, you know, a seat behind. We've got trailers, we've got tag-alongs, we've got big kid bikes, little kid bikes. It, it is a, a glorious train of family in these bike rides together. And when we're there, when we're riding bikes, it's, it's friendly, it's a friendly place, but it's also a pretty busy spot. We're crossing over intersection. There's people passing us. Shocker, we're not moving very quickly. People going around us. Bikes coming in the other direction. It's kind of organized chaos. But before we leave on the bike ride, we always have our eyes on the four to seven-year-olds because those are the ones who are riding their own bikes, but we're not super confident they know what they're doing. So we get everybody in line, and we put them usually towards the front, and we tell them there's an adult in front of you, And your job is to watch that adult and keep your eyes on them the whole time. And as I was thinking about this passage, I kept thinking about those bike rides. You see, when we're riding, we tell them just that to stay close-ish to that person right in front of you. And we give them specific instructions. But you all know what inevitably happens. Some five-year-old is riding right behind me. I have given him the sign, like, my eyes, your eyes, my back. We are cruising along here. But all of a sudden, they see some shiny convertible, and their eyes go that way, and where does their bike go? Right in the same direction. Or they're coming this way, and they see some, you know, puppy dog that somebody's watching, and all of a sudden, they're veering out in to traffic. It is, you know, and somebody's, you know, you know kind of coming along behind them and kind of getting them, like, like herding them like sheep back into the trail. And we do this over and over again. And inevitably, we also not only go down these paths, but these paths go by these ponds on the coast. And what is in those ponds if you've been to the South Carolina coast? Alligators. And so we're not only overly dramatic here, but we do see 6, 8, 10 alligators through the course Of the week. So when we get close to these ponds, you can hear all the dads and the moms just screaming, like, you keep your eyes right on me this whole time. Because those gators are in there, and, and every summer, you know, a dog or something else gets chomped up by these gators, and we are saying, you stay close to us and you do not leave behind us. So when we say it's important to them to stay on the path, we know even better than they do what the dangers are that are out there. Keep their eyes, keep your eyes on the person in front of you. And one other thing that's fascinating about this is that these kids, when they get behind us, they don't have a clue where we're going. They don't know the route. They don't know how to get there. Sometimes they don't even know the destination ahead of them. But their job is not to figure that out, their job is to do what? To keep their eyes on the person in front of them. And brothers and sisters, this is our call. And it is a challenging invitation, but it's also unbelievably freeing to us. You don't have to be in charge. You don't have to know everywhere that your life is going. You don't have to know what the plan is 10 years from now. Your job is to read God's Word, to listen to the Holy Spirit, and continue following Him. And the second thing that we want to recognize here and how we live this out is we need to recognize that we have got some unlearning to do of the things that we were taught over the years, the ways that we were molded that maybe we thought were true, but we're not actually from Jesus. So when we think about this, we think about our lives and who you are as an adult in this room today, or even as kids, you've been influenced by a number of things. You've been influenced by your parents. You've been influenced by the family around you, your school that you grew up in, your friend groups, the the political tribes that you are attached to, the media, what you consumed as a young person and as an adult. And we recognize that there's an unbelievable amount of good that came from your influences in your life. As I was thinking about this this morning, I thought about JT who's up here singing and the influence that his, and I didn't ask him if I could tell this, but hopefully this is okay, the influence that his dad had on him and knowing his story and how wonderful his father is and recognizing that there were so many things that were passed down to so many of us that we are so grateful for because they are beautifully in line with the scripture and who God calls us to be. But there's also probably a few things that we need to unlearn along the way. Let me tell you a story to help you understand this. Raise your hand if you grew up in Atlanta and learned to drive in Atlanta. A few hands go up, okay. There's others of you, most of you maybe, who maybe moved to Atlanta after you learned to drive. I grew up just north of the city, so I grew up, you know, as a young teenager watching my parents drive, kind of understanding how it works became 15, got my permit, you know, this is where I learned how to drive, and a few years ago, I realized that there's a distinction, this is not true, you know, 100% of the time, but there is a clear distinction between people that moved to Atlanta and people that grew up in Atlanta. Those of us that grew up in Atlanta, learned how to drive here, nothing seems to bother us. Like, we can be cut off, doesn't even, like, our blood pressure doesn't go up at all. When I'm with somebody who maybe moved here from the Midwest or somewhere else, you will constantly hear them say, Atlanta's the worst drivers on earth. <laughs> but you don't hear that necessarily from the people from Atlanta. And I couldn't figure out why this was. And then and then I was, and then a couple weeks ago, I was with my dad, and a, a memory kind of jogged, or it kind of came back to my mind, when I was learning how to drive i'm 15 years old and my dad and i we kind of once every few years dad would my dad would take us and on our father's day this kind of story fits in my dad would take us on a trip with like a father-son trip and so we were heading from north side of the city down to the airport and so my dad drove this uh, kind of big sedan and if you know maybe your family was the same but my mom's car was a minivan that we just like trapped mean, it was like you couldn't see the floor in that but dad's car like we were scared to like sneeze in it like it was always perfectly pristine And so we're heading down to the airport, which we've got to drive through, down 85, through the connector to the airport. And Dad, as we're walking out the door, I'm like two months into having a permit. He tosses me the keys and he says, you should drive to the airport. And I am terrified at this point. So this is Drew that's kind of driven around, you know, to school and back a little bit. Never been down the connector, never been on 85. Tosses me the keys and I am just, you know, both excited and very, very nervous. And so we're on the connector, and I'll never forget this till the day I die. I, I mean, I'm 10 and 2. My, my knuckles are, you know, like I can see the veins in my hand. I am as nervous as I can be. And I put on my indicator, my blinker, to change lanes on the connector. And my dad looks over at me. He's in the passenger seat. He looks over and goes, what on earth are you doing? And I was like, I was like Dad, like, I think this is what they told me to do. Like, if I want to get in that lane, like I put on the blinker. He goes, I promise you. He looks at me, and he goes if you put on your blinker, they're going to know you're coming. You never tell them you're coming. <laughs> and I was like, well, I mean, okay. Like, I guess that's what I just do. And I, I remember being like, that's just how we drive in Atlanta. And the same, I mean, the same, in the same breath, he goes, and you're also going a little slow. Like, you're going to get run over. If you're going anything less than 80, you're going to get run over out here. And I was like, Okay, that's fine. And so I grew up n- thinking that is how you're supposed to drive. So when I, like, when I'm on the interstate, I was thinking about this yesterday, when we were coming back from uh, South Carolina, I'm on the interstate, somebody, like, you know, comes over without a blinker, cuts me off. I'm like, it's a great move. Like, I <laughs> never saw it coming. Like, I wouldn't have let you in if you had told me. And so we recognize in this that, like, I've had to see, like, you know what? Like, as much as I hate to admit it, maybe you, like, Midwesterners, like, Know a little bit of something more than we do about driving. Like, it's hard. Let me just, like, model some humility up here. Uh, Recognizing that, like, I realize that my understanding of how to drive, like, is deeply influenced by the culture, my family, of how I grew up. And what I accept as good and okay is maybe not the standard. And so when we think about this, like, A, like, I'm probably still not going to use my blinker on the interstate, but, you know, I'll try my best. But when we think about this, we have to recognize that there are aspects of every one of our lives that we have accepted as normal that are just not healthy. So there are some people in this room who grew up with a, a marriage being modeled to you that you thought, this is how marriage works, but now you're into your 30s and you're like, gosh, like my parents, maybe, maybe they weren't a model of how to communicate well. Maybe my dad wasn't a model of how to be present and loving and compassionate in the home. Maybe the culture that you grew up in didn't, didn't praise you know hard work. And so now you're sitting there going, gosh, I, I'm called to be excellent in my work. That's what the scripture calls me to, but I don't, I don't have a grid for that because that wasn't modeled well for me. And so, as we look at the scriptures, which we, you know, you're, you're being discipled in the ways of the Lord, you're being told this is how to live life, but there's going to be moments in your own life where you need to recognize and repent of the ways that you thought I was being honoring, but actually I'm not in line with the scripture. We must recognize and in in, in repent of these ways. And so often it also is right in line with the fact that we've turned Jesus into who we want him to be instead of who he actually is. So when we think about this, the things that have molded us, whether it's your family, your culture, your political tribe. And I think about this so often with the the political tribe that we are attached to, whether that's to the right or to the left, and what I see so often, we even see it, you know, in the past few weeks, when there is a political scandal of some sort, if it's with a left, someone on the left side, a Democrat who has done something, you know, immoral, what you'll hear from people on the left is kind of a whisper of, oh, that, that's not great. What you hear from people on the right is like, unbelievable, this man or this woman did this thing. But then we wait another month or two down the road and the scandal's on this side, and what do we... We see a whisper from this side and a shouting from this side. And so what we understand here is that we've got to be men and women who boldly stand up for what is right and what is true and what is godly, even if it's different from our political tribe, even if it's different from the culture we grew up in, even if it's different from the family that we were influenced by. And that's what discipleship looks like. And the last thing of how we do this, and Richard, you can come on up, the last thing of how we do this is that we remember the work of the cross. We can be inspired by a text like this and say, gosh, I want to be like Peter. I want to be like the disciples who are willing to answer the question correctly and scream out, you are the Messiah. But the way that we do that for the long haul is that we remember and appreciate and grow in gratitude for what Jesus did for us. When we think about the big moments of our lives, we think about how we've been molded into who we are, think about the people who loved you the most. It wasn't just that they gave you good advice. It wasn't just that they showed up once or twice. Is that they displayed a sacrificial love for you. When you think about the best fathers that you know, the best fathers that you know turn down their personal preference for the good of their families. The best fathers that you know, they turn down, even if there's a promotion at work, but it's going to cause them not to be able to get home until 8 p.m. every night. They say, No, 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 as much as I want that, that's not what's best for my family. And we think about Jesus and understanding that when he, and even in the passage here today, him telling them, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And he knows that the only way they're going to be disciples of him for the long term is that they recognize and appreciate and understand what he's about to do for them. So as we head towards the communion table, we recognize that this is the strength that we draw upon order to be faithful disciples for the long term. It's not work harder. It's not simply try a little bit more. It's not even read your Bible a little bit more and you'll be okay. It's recognizing that in all. Father, I pray that you would grow us into being more and more faithful in our discipleship of Jesus. May we, as sons and daughters of the King, closely align our lives, our thoughts, our actions with the way of Jesus. May we do it out of a gratitude for the way that you've loved us so well.